Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. Based on the paper, Jack Inhibitors for Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Recent Advances. Published in September 2023. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, Deputy Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Social Media Associate Editor, and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool United Kingdom. And I would like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Salish Honap, Post-CCT Clinical Research Fellow in IBD based at King's College London, and Dr. Kamal Patel, Consultant Gastroenterologist and IBD Specialist in the Department of Gastroenterology at St. George's Hospital, London, UK. Dr. Honap is the first author and Dr. Patel is the senior author. Dr. Honap, Dr. Patel, Sash and Kamal, thank you so much for joining me today to do this podcast to discuss this very relevant and topical paper for IBD specialists currently. It's certainly been very popular online to date. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks, Phil. To start off with the questions, and we've got a few to get through today, could you explain to our listeners, many who may not be IBD specialists, how JAK inhibitors work and how they vary in their actions between different JAK inhibitors? Thanks very much again, Phil, for having us on this podcast. So JAK inhibitors are a group of potent orally administered drugs that have been around for the treatment of IBD for between four to five years now. And aside from corticosteroids and immunomodulators such as azathioprine, JAK inhibitors are the first oral advanced therapies to enter this space for several decades. And so far, there have been three that have been licensed. So we have tofacitinib, filgotinib, and upatacitinib. So how do they work? Well, as we know, there are several cytokines that are involved in initiating, perpetuating, or aggravating the inflammatory process that we see in IBD. And many of these cytokines signal through the JAK-STAT pathway. JAKs, or Janus kinases, are enzymes that are linked to the intracellular portion of the cell receptor and are involved in propagating signals via STAT proteins to regulate gene transcription in the nucleus and different cytokine-activated JAK-STAT combinations drive different cellular processes with a high degree of specificity. JAK inhibitors work by abrogating this signaling and they do this by reversibly binding onto the JAK molecule within the cell to prevent its activation, thereby blocking any downstream effects. You asked about how JAK inhibitors vary in their actions. Well, there are four JAK isoforms, JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and tyrosine kinase 2, otherwise known as TIC2. Tofacitinib preferentially inhibits JAK1 and JAK3, whereas filgotinib and upatacitinib are the newer ones. They are JAK1 selective, and the rationale for JAK selective inhibition is to maximise therapeutic efficacy without compromising the homeostatic functions of the other JAK isoforms. And finally, just remember, JAK inhibitors are not biologics. Unlike biologics, JAK inhibitors are small molecule synthetic drugs. They're readily absorbed and they can be given orally rather than parentally. They work within the cell rather than outside of the cell. And they can inhibit the action of a whole range of different cytokines rather than targeting just one or two like biologics. 
Phil, I hope that makes sense to you and listeners. I think that may have been the first time I've explained how jack inhibitors work without the aid of a PowerPoint slide. It was excellent, Sasha, I must say. Um, very, very clear. Uh, thank you for doing that. So most of the jack inhibitors are currently licensed, uh, in the UK at least, for the use in moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, but uh, upadacitamide is licensed in the treatment of moderate to severe Crohn's disease in the UK also. Can you very concisely give an overview of the key efficacy studies that underpin their, their use? Thank you, Phil, for that question. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with ulcerative colitis first and the uh, tofacitinib studies, which were known as the octave studies. And there were two induction studies and one maintenance studies. Um, this um, was a large program, a lot of patients. And the key findings in this study were that although bio-naive and bio-exposed patients were both included in the study, we got a really good signal in both of these populations, including anti-TNF failures, that this drug works really well, whether you give it to a bio-naive patient or a bio-exposed patient. And we saw clinical remission rates in the maintenance portion of the study with a delta of nearly 30% over placebo. So, you know, a, a really nice outcome for the study and a really nice program. Filgotinib's study designs were similar to tofacitinib in that there were two induction studies and one maintenance study, the entire program known as the selection study. The maintenance key findings were, again, that the clinical remission was over 25% over placebo. So again, a really nice outcome. And this study was the first study to use, in my opinion, a really good corticosteroid-free stringent definition where you had to be free of steroids for six months. Uh, to have reached that outcome. And that was also a positive finding in this study. Upatacitinib in ulcerative colitis had again the same design. So two induction studies known as you achieve and you accomplish, and then one maintenance study known as you achieve. You know, again, some very outstanding findings in my opinion, the delta of the clinical remission at the higher dose of upatacitinib over placebo was over 40%. In this instance, in the maintenance phase, and really every key secondary endpoint, as well as the primary endpoints, obviously, were met in the study. Also, really nice to see a study which was able to give a clinical significant finding for a drug working, you know, effectively immediately as early as the second day. So, you know, this study really highlighted that this drug works rapidly. Moving on to Crohn's disease, um, as mentioned previously in the podcast, only upadacitinib has a nice TA from the JAK inhibitors at present. And the program here was known as the UXL and UXEED program with two induction studies. And then the maintenance phase of the study was known as UENDUR. You know, again, very similar to Crohn's disease at the higher doses of upadacitinib, again, a delta of over 30% versus placebo in the maintenance phase. And again, every key secondary outpoint also being met and the drug working as early as four weeks with statistical significance. Um, I would just like to highlight a few other things in this question. Jack inhibitors as a class work across various indications. So it's not surprising that they work so well in Crohn's disease and in ulcerative colitis because they work very well in other immune mediated conditions. And also the future looks bright because other molecules 
which are part of the JAK complex known as TIC2 inhibitors, are also being currently trialed in early phase programs. And hopefully in the near future, we may also see a gut selective JAK inhibitor, which may limit side effects, um, showing some positive results in clinical trials, because all of these different ways of, of, of making the molecule are currently being investigated. So thank you. I hope that answers the question. Thanks, Kamal. That was a really uh, good summary because there's a lot of data that you've just given an overview there. So thank you. Thank you very much. That was really good. So obviously, the next question is going to be, can you give an overview of the key safety data related to uh, JAK inhibitors? So there's lots I could discuss here regarding safety, but I'll try and give you a brief overview. The first thing to remember is that most adverse events related to JAK inhibitors are mild to moderate, they're predictable, and they're easy to manage. However, JAK inhibitors are also associated with more serious side effects, which those managing uh, IBD patients should be aware of. And these concerns stem from the uh, results of the oral surveillance trial, which was a randomised, open-label, non-inferiority safety study, which was mandated by the FDA. Uh, and it was a study of tofacitinib uh, versus anti-TNF therapy for rheumatoid arthritis patients. For patients to be eligible for the study, they needed to be over the age of 50, and they had to have at least one cardiovascular risk factor. In a sentence, the results from this study, which has put JAK inhibitors into the limelight, showed increased incident rates of cancer and major adverse cardiovascular events uh, with tofacitinib when compared to anti-TNF alpha therapy. So let's look at four of these major adverse events in turn, and I'll keep it brief. Firstly, cancer. As mentioned, there was a higher incident rate of cancer, most commonly lung cancer and lymphoma from this study, compared to anti-TNF agents uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.48. Interestingly, a recent meta-analysis with 62 RCTs with more than 80,000 person years of JAK inhibitor exposure actually showed no significant difference in uh, malignancy incident between JAK inhibitor and placebo. But when JAK inhibitors were compared to anti-TNF agents, which of course was largely influenced by oral surveillance, there was a difference. The point to note here is cancers from JAK inhibitor exposure are rare, but until this risk is precisely defined in the patients we treat, JAK inhibitors should be avoided in patients with risk factors for cancer. Secondly, we've got MACE, which is an acronym for Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events. While tofacitinib was shown to increase the risk of MACE in oral surveillance, we haven't seen this in IBD patients and the overall incidence is low. And this also includes interim outcomes from the long-term uh, extension studies of filgotinib and upatacitinib, which were presented earlier this year. The JAK inhibitor class are associated with dose-dependent changes in uh, components of the lipid profile. So these should be checked and patients with lipid uh, abnormalities should be uh, referred accordingly if the cardiovascular risk profile warrants treatment. Thirdly, we've got venous thromboembolism in oral surveillance, which was seen more frequently at the 10 milligram BID dose, but the study itself wasn't powered to compare VTE across the two treatments, uh, anti-TNF and tofacitinib. And again, this isn't something that we've really seen 
in IBD patients, two large meta-analyses of several thousand JAK inhibitor-exposed patients across all inflammatory diseases, actually, not just IBD, did not find an increased risk. But for now, guidance states that JAK inhibitors should be used with caution in patients with VTE risk factors. And then finally, we've got infection. Now, uh, serious infection increases with age. And uh, for this very reason, JAK inhibitors should be avoided in patients over the age of 65. The most notable viral infection was herpes zoster. This is something that we've seen uh, in clinical practice, demonstrated in real-world studies and the clinical trial programmes for JAK inhibitors across the class. And this may be explained by the JAK1-mediated suppression of interferon, which has an antiviral role. But the reassuring thing here is most cases are non-serious. Most cases affect a single dermatome and treatment withdrawal due to shingles is really rare. So to recapitulate, most adverse events are mild to moderate, but patients should be informed of the uh, lesser common but serious risks. A few things from reading your paper. You discussed the issues in pregnancy and breastfeeding with JAK inhibitors. Could you uh, briefly explain these to the listeners? And also, can you explain how frontline clinicians manage this signal across all the JAK inhibitors related to herpes infections, although granted they're, they're, they're not serious infections or very serious infections when they occur? Thank you, Phil, for that question. So you've asked three questions there, so I'm going to break it down with each one in sequence. So starting with pregnancy, I think the first thing to say is that at this time point, we just don't have enough data from a safety perspective or an efficacy perspective to know what to do with JAK inhibitors in pregnancy. And therefore, the safe thing to do is to not use this drug in a female who wants to start a family. Now, we do have some preclinical work showing that much higher doses of JAK inhibitor than what we prescribe in day-to-day clinical practice for humans is both teratogenic and feticidal from animal models. So that's data is there from animal models and therefore has to be interpreted with caution. And therefore, rightly so, the expert consensus, the ECHO guidance, and the American guidance is not to use JAK inhibitors in pregnancy. Now, there is a second issue here as well, because Sasha's already mentioned the thrombosis risk so if you do have a young woman, what you don't want is an unwanted pregnancy. And therefore, I, in my clinical practice, will advise using a safe contraception measure for a young woman on a, on a JAK inhibitor and also highlight the fact that I would be I would feel happier if the patient was not on the combined contraception pill. So progesterone pills are fine and coils are fine, but ideally not a pill with estrogen or not any device with estrogen because of the added thrombosis risk with estrogen poses. That's not to say that we cannot use the drug to dampen down a flare or induce remission before an individual starts family planning. And I frequently do this in my practice, where if I do have a young woman who is flaring badly and two, three years down the line wants to consider a family, if I think the JAK inhibitor is the right drug, I will start it. You know, I will then counsel the patient appropriately to say, we need to check for remission before you start fa- family planning and then get you onto an alternative medication. And really, 
that jack inhibitors need at least four weeks of washout before planning pregnancy. Now, moving on to lactation, so breastfeeding, there is data that unlike, for example, ustekinumab or vedaluzumab, the concentration of jack inhibitors in breast milk is much higher than we have seen with our biologics. Um, in fact, with, with in, in some studies, you know, significantly higher than the serum concentration. So therefore, once again, because of this and because of a lack of any safety data at the moment, it is a contraindication to be breastfeeding on a JAK inhibitor. And again, you know, you have to counsel the individual through either an alternate form of feeding the baby or an alternative treatment if appropriate. So that's hopefully answering the pregnancy and breastfeeding question. Moving on to how I deal with the herpes signal, this is actually quite easy now because fortunately uh, our powers that be in UK have now allowed us access to the Shingrix vaccine for everyone over the age of 50 on any immunosuppressive medication. And they get the two Shingrix vaccines, which are given ideally eight weeks apart or more than eight weeks apart and do not need to delay starting the treatment because it's a non-live vaccine and you can give the vaccine on treatment and they've allowed the booster, booster dose so that although the individual is immunosuppressed, the second dose should increase the efficacy of the vaccine. Uh, individuals under the age of 50, strictly speaking on the UK guidance, do not have access to Shingrix. I still say it's good practice to ask the GPs to consider this. And if this is not an option, then, you know, you have to discuss with the patient. Do you want to delay starting treatment and have the traditional live vaccine if the individual is under the age of 50? Or do you want to go on treatment without being vaccinated? Or you can, of course, also pay for the Shingrix vaccine, which I don't think is fair on the patient. But, you know, it's still worth discussing if they don't have access through it via an NHS channel. So, um, you know, I do think the vaccinations, not just for herpes, but for any virus associated with any drug treatment we use in IBD should not be overseen and always be advocated. Thank you, Kamal. That was that was really clear. The European Medicines Agency in Europe and the Medicines and Healthcare Products uh, Regulatory Agency or the MHRA have placed some restrictions on jack inhibitors use. Can you very briefly explain the background to this and what those are? Uh, thanks, Phil. Well, following the publication of oral surveillance uh, early last year, which I explained earlier, the Jack uh, inhibitor class were placed under safety review by PRAC, which stands for the Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee. It's a branch of the EMA. Uh, and the, the PRAC recommendations were endorsed earlier this year in March 23. And the MHRA followed suit and issued a statement the following month. So the new advice is as follows. Jack inhibitors should only be used in the following groups, the lowest effective dose, if no suitable alternative agent is available. So these are patients over the age of 65, patients that have an increased risk of major cardiovascular problems, such as, so, such as heart, heart attacks or strokes, uh, patients that are current smokers or have smoked for a long time in the past, uh, and for patients with an increased risk of cancer. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a signal also with venous thromboembolism, so JAK inhibitors should be used with caution in those patients that have VTE risk factors, and again, used at the lowest effective dose. 
Uh, just to highlight, these recommendations apply to all JAK inhibitors indicated for all chronic inflammatory diseases. And there is a degree of clinical judgment with the wording of the recommendations. So, for example, the, the degree of previous smoking exposure, you know, is that 10 pack years, 20 pack years? That's, that's open uh, to, to question. And risk factors for cancer are also open to interpretation. But one would, I suppose, uh, think that prior cancer is going to be a major risk factor for cancer. Um, it, I think this is going to be this is unlikely to be the end of the turbulent jack inhibitor story. While filgotinib and upatacitinib are exempt from post-market FDA-required studies, the uh, the results from the ongoing baricitinib studies may well lead to yet another change in recommendation uh, and guidance in the future. But uh, let's wait and see. Right. The final two questions. Now, I accept there may not be an easy answer to these, so um, really just try your best uh, with these. So, Jack inhibitors to me seem like a really useful tool in the armatarium for IBD patients. As you've described in the paper and in this podcast, they're oral medications, they're rapidly acting, uh, they have good efficacy data role and a reasonable safety profile. But where do you see them positioned and sequenced in the treatment of especially UC, but also Crohn's disease in relation to uh, opacitinib? Where do you see it all fits together? Thank you, Phil, for that question. And thank you for acknowledging it's a very difficult question to answer because in the absence of head-to-heads, it's difficult to know where to sequence a drug. You know, I think back about the ECHO lecture about sequencing all of our treatments in IBD and in, in, in February just this year, and the general outcome was every drug is superior to placebo, and therefore you can use every drug and should be using every drug. So let's just start with what the NICE TAs say. NICE has allowed us to use JAK inhibitors in ulcerative colitis, first line or second line, or third line or beyond there, if your local CCGs allow. And you know, based on what the clinical trials show, that is perfectly reasonable. It's difficult because, you know, I'm going to give a shout to Chris Lamb's IBD response study because we need a biomarker or a genetic marker or a microbial marker to help us to know which treatment to use and which treatment to use when. And then, of course, we have to balance that with the side effects. So I can only tell you what I do in UC locally at St. George's. And what I do is if I have a young patient without the cardiovascular risk factors, which Sasha's mentioned, I will offer a JAK inhibitor first line because tablets are very convenient for young patients. And, you know, the JAK inhibitors work quickly and they've also allowed me to reduce the amount of steroids which patient needs up front. And we're seeing all of these signals in our day-to-day clinical practice at St. George's. So I'm not shy of offering a, a young patient who is fit in UC, a JAK inhibitor upfront. Now, this also has the added benefit of saving our acute severe therapies, you know, which is now namely infliximab for later down the line, should the patient need it. For anti-TNF failures, I have to be honest, I do prefer to then use JAK inhibitors as their next treatment, because if a patient who has failed an anti-TNF is already in a horrible clinical dilemma and at risk of surgery. And, um, you know, my interpretation of the clinical trials is this class is a very good class of drugs for individuals who have failed anti-TNF. I don't like mentioning network meta-analyses because 
I don't think anybody at a clinical level understands how the, the network meta-analysis is designed, but I have to highlight that in every NMA as a class, JAK inhibitors do very well, first line or second line in ulcerative colitis. And, you know, that has, um, uh, that has transitioned myself as to how I practice and has reinforced that I don't want to necessarily hold these drugs for the later down the line. I do want to use them early if I can. With respect to Crohn's disease, NICE has made it slightly easier for us in that they've only given us a TA for individuals who are either failing anti-TNF or not suitable for anti-TNF. The slight caveat there is, is if you're not suitable for an anti-TNF, you're unlikely to be suitable for a JAK inhibitor. But effectively, it's a, it's a second-line drug is the way NICE have, have you know, written their document. And you know, this has been done on cost, completely reasonable. So again, if I have a young patient who has failed anti-TNF in Crohn's disease, I will be very happy to use the JAK inhibitor as my next line of treatment. But certainly, we have a lot of patients who have failed two biologic classes, and I will use a JAK inhibitor before going to an, another class in that situation where somebody has failed two classes. And if they failed all of our biologics, then you would use it. So that's where I am at the moment. And I'm hoping we have you know, good investigator-led studies, and UK is very good at doing this to further help us in the future with how to sequence our drugs. Thank you. I, I know that was a difficult question. I put you on the spot there, uh, but thank you for such a good uh, go at uh, giving a, a very um, uh, good overview of the answer or potential answers. So you've mentioned the use of JAK inhibitors in acute severe colitis and in combination treatment and for other immune-mediated inflammatory diseases in the paper and also briefly in this podcast. Briefly, what is the benefit of this? Is there any evidence to support this? And how are we going to work out who will benefit from such an approach? We've kind of already briefly talked about personalized medicine approach, um, but this really kind of relates back to that, uh, essentially. Well, uh, thanks, Phil. We've come to know that JAK inhibitors are a rapidly acting and potent group of drugs. And this is because they... Uh, they're quickly absorbed and they attenuate the effect of a whole range of uh, cytokines. And because of this, they've been considered as candidate drugs for the treatment of acute severe ulcerative colitis to prevent colectomy. Uh, indeed, there, there are accumulating data, so far limited to case series and observational studies, to show that this approach is effective. And anecdotally, I'm sure uh, Kamal and I will both have shared and separate personal experiences of treating hospitalised patients with acute severe ulcerative colitis, or just indeed patients that are hospitalised that perhaps don't meet the true love and wits criteria for uh, for, for uh, acute severe, uh, to show that this uh, has, uh, you know, potentially is potentially effective. What we need, of course, is an RCT to show whether this approach is efficacious. So therefore, for now, JAK inhibitors are not licensed for acute severe ulcerative colitis, but do watch this space. There are a couple of registered trials, the last time I checked on clinicaltrials.gov.uk, uh, that are seeking to look at this. So advanced combination therapy involves combining two biologics or combining a small molecule inhibitor with a biologic. 
the idea, of course, being to augment the therapeutic efficacy to treat patients not only with refractory disease, but also patients with coexisting immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. And again, there are a number of observational studies demonstrating both safety and effectiveness but the main limitations are the lack of conclusive phase three RCT data. And I think the final part of your question referred to personalized medicine. Now, I don't have a huge amount to say here. Uh, As we all know, IBD is very much a complex disease that affects a highly heterogeneous patient population and has very variable and unpredictable responses to all interventions. Despite the biomarker discovery field being such an incredibly research-intensive field currently, we don't actually have any consistently reproducible and reliable biomarkers available just yet. So the road to IBD precision medicine remains, you know, it remains a challenging and an arduous one. However, a lot of ongoing work that we see uh, from conference after conference, uh, in paper after paper, does reveal a great deal of promise uh, for uh, clinical practice in the future. Thank you, uh, Sasha, for that for that um, great answer. And thank you, both of you, for this excellent overview of your brilliant paper. I must say, I really, really enjoyed reading it. And I know lots of people on social media are commenting exactly the same. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this Frontline Gastroenterology podcast today. Um, hopefully um, our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. And finally, um, many congratulations again on having your excellent paper published in Frontline Gastroenterology. I know the entire editorial team are thrilled that you chose to publish it with us. So thank you very much. To our listeners, do read the paper. The link for it is directly under this podcast so do click on that link to take you direct to the paper and of course please join us again in the future for further frontline gastroenterology podcasts thanks very much for listening Mm -hmm.